0: Welcome to the MRI Cast. These podcasts focus on various current topics in MRI. We invite you to ask questions via the website and even suggest topics for future MRI casts. The opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect standards in clinical practices, nor should they be considered as medical advice. Well, hello everyone. I'm Bill Faulkner, and welcome to this MRI Cast. This is number seven in a series of MRI Casts on the topic of gadolinium-based contrast agents. And this series is sponsored by an unrestricted educational grant from Bracco Diagnostics, and we certainly appreciate their support. Now, the topic of today's MRI cast is adverse events, specifically following the administration of a gadolinium-based contrast agent. And with me today for this discussion is Dr. Howard Raleigh and Kristen Harrington. Hello, guys. Good morning, Bill. Don't be so reactionary, okay? <laughs>
1: Are we starting with the big words today?
0: Yeah, we're going to already. I can tell this is going to be a big word day.
1: Well, I'm not up to the task, so I'm just going to let you two go at it. And um, hello, everyone.
0: Well, let's let's start this discussion on uh, the ACR uh, or on adverse events. And the reason why I said ACR, one of the things that we're going to have for you is we're going to have a link to some resource materials. Uh, that we're going to refer to today in this podcast, and these resource materials are freely available online, but we'll give you a link uh, to the materials. One is the ACR manual on MR safety. The other is the most recent ACR contrast media manual, uh, version 2020. And then we're going to have these little pocket reaction cards. There's two. There's an adult, and there's a pediatric. Um, these are little pocket reference cards, and we'll have the uh, from the ACR, and we'll have that available for everybody in a in a resource link uh, that you'll see. Uh, you have to, obviously have to get to it on on the web page. So uh, let's get started. First, let's let's talk about. What I'd like to start with is get your all's opinions on this or thoughts on this, I should say. If you look at the ACR's manual on MR contrast, they have it what starting section of it pretty much lump gadolinium and iodinated contrast media together because this one particular section. Uh, page 25 to be exact I'm looking at it right now it says allergic like and physiologic reactions to intravascular iodinated contrast medium and then when you get through to uh, gadolinium it says or on down here a little bit it says at Acute adverse events can be categorized as either allergic-like or physiologic and organized into three general categories, which are mild, moderate, severe. Now, this is the interesting part. A suggested classification system, which can be utilized for both iodinated contrast media and gadolinium-based contrast media, they say that they should be kind of lumped together stratifying if I can read, stratifying adverse events by severity and type. And they present this, again, in in a table that stratifies them, if I can say it, uh, all together. And this is kind of interesting because they are saying that there's a need to clearly identify the difference between an allergic-like, and that's the term they use, allergic-like adverse event, versus a uh, physiologic adverse event. Uh, Howard, what are your thoughts on that? Because there is a difference between physiologic event versus a so-called allergic-like, or I've heard them it referred to as anaphylactoid, meaning anaphylactic-like.
2: Well, I think what they're trying to distinguish there is the uh, very common, well, Less than 1%, but still the commonest reaction is an anaphylactoid event. It's not really anaphylaxis, which bottoms out your pressure and can kill you. And I think that's what they're meaning by more of the physiologic uh, type type of uh, reaction.
0: Well, the physiologic reactions would be things as what we typically see most often, flushing, nausea and this is a thing that i think is a really big time misconception among uh technologists and in some cases even radiologists is that uh you know when you inject somebody with anything in the blood anything in the bloodstream with an osmolality higher than plasma your body's going to try to accommodate that and shift fluid from the extracellular fluid spaces into the bloodstream and uh you know when you do that, histamine comes along for the ride. There's also a histamine in the bowel, histamine type two, and this is what can result in the so-called sour stomach, and which is what tagamet does. It's a it's a histamine blocker, tagamet HB, HB standing for histamine blocker. And so a lot of people get the are under this impression that when they inject contrast media, and if somebody gets nauseated, then they're having a reaction to the gadolinium, and maybe we should change gadolinium agents. And that's really just not based in science. Again, thoughts from you guys?
1: Oh, well, you know, I'll say something here. Um, yeah, I think that, that that's a knee-jerk reaction, and I know that facilities, and uh, we all three know this, that facilities that change contrast agents, they have that Weber, the lolly effect where, you know, they don't give it enough time. The the technologist has trepidation about giving it, and they can transfer that. That's just a fact. I mean, I don't have any data, but I'm going to say it's a fact because I can. Um, but they can transfer that stress of giving a new agent to a patient and actually create um, the nausea, the headache, the concern, Um I could make any of you vomit at, you know, (laughs) at any time. I guarantee that, um, not just with giving a contrast agent. (laughs) So, I mean,
0: don't be so rough on yourself.
1: (laughs) Oh, you know, facts are facts. And so anyway, no, I think that as far as these allergic like reactions, I will say this for a fact that we, um, I had a child that was um, vomiting recently and, you know, we just handled it. The child vomited, And I'm not sure why it happened. The parents were extremely concerned about giving this contrast agent. They were not in the room. And I can't remember why, because it was non-sedate. And usually they go back. But I think they transferred that stress onto the child. And then the child, he definitely did vomit. And then I went on to further, because I have to report this stuff, just in our reporting mechanism. And it turns out that all of the other reactions are associate all of them with one other technologist, all of them. And so I think that technologists can almost create these reactions. Howard, have you seen that or Bill?
2: Well, for sure. Um, we When we switched contrast agents about 10 or 15 years ago uh, at one of our outpatient uh, centers, uh, we, we've, we had a big bump in cases. And uh, it turned out one of the tech helpers who helped to change and room people was telling people that we've got a new agent. A lot of people have been getting sick, and if you need the the bucket to vomit into, <laughs> to be sure to tell the tech. And it was just striking um, how that that preloading, if you will, um, changed things. So, you know, I think w- we got into this by saying, you know, what what about a reaction, and do you change agents? Certainly in the iodinated contrast area. Uh, I think a lot of studies have shown at least some some signal that uh, if you change agents, there's a lower risk of uh, of secondary reactions. Um, Sometimes it's hard to sort out because people change agents and pre-medicate. So uh, I know in Europe, I think it's less common to change agents, either gadolinium or iodinated contrast, uh, if there's been a reaction, but people do react again or even have breakthrough reactions after pretreatment, treatment And reaction is usually somewhat similar to the original one. Who knows how much of it is, you know, power of suggestion as, as you're suggesting here.
0: There's actually a, uh, well, first let me tell you a, a anecdotal, I mean, from my experience. Uh, back when I had a real job, I worked for a company that had multiple imaging centers uh, across the U.S. I think they had about 16 imaging centers. And we made a uh, deal, the guy that was my direct manager who was in the corporate level in operations, he uh, made a deal with one of the drug companies to buy all contrast agents, iodinated contrast, gadolinium contrast, you know, whatever else from this this one company. Some of the centers were using the gadolinium agents from this company. Uh, Other centers weren't of those centers that were not using the uh gadolinium this particular agent uh there were some centers of that group there were some that didn't mind changing and then there were others that were absolutely totally opposed to it absolutely not going to do it uh i'll let you guess which one of the which group of centers upon immediately changing had the highest number of adverse events i mean it's should come as no surprise it was the ones that didn't want to change that were reporting all the adverse events furthermore when i had them collect the adverse events go okay then track it track it for me so when they track it it comes out to being about one percent or somewhere in that range and i'd like to talk about the percentages here but in from what i'm reading You know, typically, depending on who you ask, uh, adverse event rates, according to the ACR, run between, I believe it's uh, 0.7% and 2%, maybe something like that, Uh, you know, somewhere in that range, you know, with 1% kind of being around the the norm, and that's typically what you see. Uh, And, you know, we basically told them, you know, get over it, Uh, get a life, you know. 1% 1% is an extremely low adverse event rate with any type of drug. Howard, would you not agree? I mean, most drugs have penicillin is like, what, 25%? Yeah,
2: that it's a very low and very acceptable rate and certainly way under 1%, I think, in most series for any kind of serious uh, event.
0: Yeah, and so, you know, again, that's just something that, interestingly enough, once we told them to get over it, then the rates seem to drop a little bit there's an article uh, that actually addresses this this was published in radiology in 2013 and it reports the effect of abrupt substitution of uh, one agent for uh another and so and in this one in particular was substituting so they substituted multi-hands for Magnavist, and the number of adverse event rates shot up when they did that but they tracked it out over time and said that it was uh, typical of uh, temporal pattern suggestive of the weber effect which is a transient increase meaning short-lived increase in adverse event reporting that tends to peak in the second year after a new agent or indication is introduced and again i personally have seen this time and time again, with multiple agents. Um, Howard, your thoughts on this? Because I know, like I said, well, you mentioned when you changed agents, you all had some of a similar type uh, effect, correct? Absolutely. We had it with that one guy. That's right. And I know Manny Cannell has looked at this with his centers in
2: Pittsburgh and found very similar, you know, and expected bump uh, after the introduction of a new agent, especially if it's there's some resistance on site, there must be something being telegraphed. And, you know, this was originally, the Weber effect was originally, I believe, described in Britain related to uh, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that were being changed. So it's not just with, you know, uh, contrast agents, It's it's with a lot of different medicines and you know, forcing someone to take the generic when they really believe the brand name is better etc can can lead to uh, you know apparent reactions
0: one of the things that um i found i remember in one one center i was at was talking to them about adverse events and uh you know basically telling them you know these things happen uh you know you have to be prepared to treat an adverse event And I had a hospital administrator, which is kind of funny, look me square in the eye and say, we can't have patients in our hospital getting sick. Yeah. (laughs) Just let the stupidity of that sink in for just a moment. Okay. And this
1: was a licensed physician.
0: No, no, it was, no, it was, it was a hospital administrator.
1: Oh, that makes sense.
0: Okay. Yeah. This was, this was a hospital administrator. Um, but, but I've heard stuff from licensed physicians as well. I've got another story on that one. But anyway, so the guy says, we can't have our patients getting sick. I wanted to say, dude, it's a hospital. People in the hospital are patients. They're in the hospital because they're sick, you know. And um, I had another guy call me, a, a tech call me. I don't think I've ever told you this one, Howard. This tech called me up and I returned the call. And uh, he said, "Can you uh, do you have any recommendations for a gadolinium agent to use after hours, at night?" <laughs> and I, I said, "See, the thing that immediately came to my mind is happy hour manager's reception at an embassy suite. See, it, 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 for those of you who haven't stayed in embassy suite, at least before COVID." Um, and they're starting to get back to it again. They have this, what's this thing called manager's reception. And so you've got free alcohol and snacks. Well, the alcohol they give you is is not top shelf alcohol by any means. Uh you know, it probably were using it to clean the counters that morning. I mean, it's it's pretty bad stuff. So that's what immediately came to mind. I asked the guy, I go, I said, what is it like happy hour or something? Uh is this like the the call? Gadolinium, not the well gadolinium, you know, and uh, he said, "No, he said we're just not prepared to treat an adverse event at night." And I told him, "I said, son, that's your problem, is not being prepared to to treat an adverse event." Kristen Howard, any thoughts on that? Because I mean, I think that's that's really something that I think people overlook from an MR safety standpoint, and it's just, it's especially. I think significant in the MRI setting because you can't treat an ad, you can't treat a medical emergency in the scan room, you know? And I think at least in our experience doing site audits and stuff, that's what we find a lot of times people just, because they rarely happen, they're just not prepared to treat it.
1: Yeah. There's a large facility here um, in Georgia, that um, has multiple i can't even count how many outpatient facilities that they have and i have been told by um someone pretty high in management um bill you've met this person as well that um, is that
0: high in the literal sense or high in the um <laughs> uh, in the hierarchy
1: you know what? I'm going to let you answer that one. Um, so no, but what, they, what they've told me is that, you know, they know that they're supposed to have a physician that is immediately uninterruptible. I think is pretty much the terminology available in case there is um, some sort of reaction that, you know, necessitates them coming over, but their um, orthopedist doctors actually leave to go um, make sure they make their tea time. And that's not with crumpets. That's to, you know, for golf. Um, so they don't have a physician period because they don't take it seriously. And I know Bill, you've got a story. You, you, I think it's a great time for you to tell that story about the delay as far as handling at the outpatient facility um, and, and and this is a very common thing at this facility, and I can't stress it enough to the person that's higher up in administration. You know that they've got to fix it, but they don't. They just the the doctors they don't take it seriously.
0: Well, the 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 reality is, and Howard, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but according to CMS, which is Medicare, uh, Medicare requires. For contrast media injections, this doesn't matter whether it's iodine or, or, or gadolinium. Medicare requires direct supervision. So there's indirect supervision or something like that. Direct supervision, and then there's something that's higher than that. Direct supervision, according to the Medicare uh, guidelines, is uh, that a radio a doctor it doesn't have to be a radiologist, a doctor has to be in the area and immediately available to assist. And according to Manny Canal, who's talked to them about this, immediately available, according to Medicare CMS, is defined as being, Kristen used the word, uh, interruptible, meaning that they can't be tied up doing another procedure. Uh, The... uh, I've seen this more than once in outpatient facilities. One from a group we were doing a side audit on where for adverse events, they were going to be covered by a physician. And I forget the specialty of the physician, but it was a, you know, this is a physician office building. So this person, whatever, whatever specialty they were, I don't know. I can't remember whether it's orthopedic cardiology or something, but the office was across the hall from the uh imaging office component here so over in another physician's office across the hall and they had a they had a hotline that they were supposed to call well while we were there we called the hotline and it went to a voicemail so this is supposed to be their uh response to an adverse event uh Howard, your thoughts on these setups because this is this can actually be very catastrophic for the radiologist group cuz they are responsible for the safety of the patient and if you had an adverse event, you call your, you know, phone a friend, you're supposed to dial the person across the hall and it goes to voicemail. Um, I would say that the radiologist group is in quite a uh, uh, quite a
1: spot yeah and i just have to add this in we actually went to one facility for a site audit where they didn't know who or where or what to do in the case of um a um severe anaphylactoid reaction and but they did know where the active shooter button was you remember oh. that one william mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right yep well i
2: think you've you've brought up a lot of important points and it's it's bad enough for the radiology group but of course it's really bad for the patient who's having the reaction and you don't want anyone to 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 suffer or, or have forbid die although that's maybe one in a million and i think the the point that you've also made is because these are uncommon you know less than 1% people get a little bit lax in their thinking about it what we've done internally is we have a number of different sites. We have, you know, 15 magnets and you know outpatient centers and different hospitals that are all in a big clump, and we've sort of operationalized it by saying that we have to be within 90 seconds of responding to a code any or a contrast reaction anywhere in in uh, the departments where we give contrast. And so, and that has to be a physician. It doesn't have to be a radiologist. And on rare occasions in the past, we've actually hired, for example, internists to cover the contrast reactions in buildings where they're working. But it was a defined thing where they picked up the beeper in the morning and they knew they were covering the contrast reaction service. Um, So uh, it has to be a qualified physician. You can back that up, of course, with 911 if you're in an outpatient center and things start to go south after initial measures but our rule of thumb is you need to have a physician there on site and that has to be someone who can arrive at the bedside hopefully you've pulled them out of the magnet already but um, within 90 seconds is our rule of thumb for our centers
0: let me let me mention something here that that howard said and for the listeners i think this is really important because we get this a lot from technologists that we work with And they say, well, you know, our administration, or our management, again, this is typically an issue more at outpatient centers than it is in in hospital settings. Although Kristen's got a really good example in the hospital uh, setting that I want her to share. But anyway, uh, they will say, well, you know, what if we got like an EMT or something like that? Well, the the problem is, and again, I'm going to look to Howard for verification on this. The the problem is this person has to be able to ass- yes assess the patient, but also administer medications. And if they, in in most cases, you you can't administer medications unless you've got a doctor's order. I mean, I think if I'm not mistaken, e- EMTs when they respond, they're in communication with a. For the physician in the ER or something. I mean, they just they typically just can't, you know, decide this patient needs this medication. Is that is that not right, Howard? I mean, you, you...
2: No, that's correct. Especially you're giving typically IV uh, medications, or at least a, when it gets bad, that that's uh, physician monitored, and uh, ultimately the gadolinium is administered uh, by order of a physician and is responsible for that gadolinium uh, administration.
0: That's that's a great point for again for the for the text online listening here, I, I mean you've got to have a written order for gadolinium and you're administering a medication a prescription medication under the direction and supervision of the radiologist. By the way, whether their own site or not. Um, going back to the CMS thing that I that I didn't mention before I got off track there. If if it can be shown that a facility is administering a contrast media to a patient without a physician providing direct supervision, that's Medicare fraud. And the Department of Justice will prosecute that. There are numerous uh, published accounts. You you can search for it where, radi- where facilities, radiologists group, they're all kind of lumped together. They're all found liable for Medicare fraud. And they literally are fined in millions of, of dollars. And again, that's that's the Medicare law. And so it, it not only, going back to Howard's point, it's just good medicine to be able to treat An adverse event. Kristen kids me all the time because I get on this rant and I'm, you know, say this is a medical procedure. It's not a day spa. And if you're only, if your only solution to an adverse event is call 911, the patient is not going to fare well because you, in, in the rare, rarest of cases where these things are significant crash and burns, Uh, if it's not handled immediately, within minutes, it it can turn out very bad for the patient. And I think it's a shame that in the U.S. practice of medicine, we need to be forced to do something more from a legal requirement, more so than just a, a plain ethical requirement. You know, you're giving a drug. People can have adverse events to drugs. It's... Not being prepared is where the problem is. And and if you want to look at the legal component of it, I've been an expert witness in a couple of cases that deals with an adverse event. They don't... They're not getting sued because they gave the drug. They're not getting sued because they used a certain brand of a contrast agent. They get sued because they don't handle it appropriately. And that's, you know, that's the bottom line. I just think it's sad we don't have any significant enforcement of that until something bad happens. Thoughts from you guys?
2: Well, of course, Bill, you're, you're right. And, um, you know, we, at least, uh, since these are rare, uh, we, as I mentioned, we will get lax, but we, we have to realize if we do 60 or 70,000 MRs a year in our practice, uh, 1% times that is a lot of patients having reactions. Mm -hmm. And so we, we always have a yearly refresher on contrast reactions for all the staff. When the new residents and fellows come in, we have a little tutorial. We bring bring out the, the crash carts and the drugs uh, drug drawers so they know where everything is. We walk around every single magnet or, or uh, scanner. We say, okay, in this area, this is where you find it. For the pediatric ones and the adults, we have these color-coded, especially in peds, these color-coded weight charts where, you know, it's already predetermined. This is in the pink range where we entered them on the scanner. Okay, they're pink. Uh, what's the dose for epinephrine, uh, et cetera. So having these reminders and then people carry the contrast reaction cards and we have them posted, the ACR has those for free. I think you're going to provide those uh, yeah. as as a reference. All that stuff, you you need all hands on deck and everybody trying to remember this because hopefully you haven't seen one for a month or three or five, uh, but they are going to happen, usually mild, but uh, you you, you have to be ready and you have to be there. Uh, I think it's it's uh, negligent not to to have a physician on site when you're injecting.
1: You know, um, Howard, you bring up a great point here. And um, working in a pediatric facility, I believe it's going on 13 years this November, and it's definitely on a very low scale at this point, PRN. But um, just in the past year, I asked them we were doing a mock you know, reaction, how we would handle it. And, you know, we know the pre-designated area to take the patient to, and we know what to do, but I actually asked them, and this is the first time ever I've had this happen. I asked them to open the contrast reaction box, which nobody wants anyone, nursing did not want to open because then they have to go back through and count and, you know, put another tag on it. But I was like, no, I really want because I, in a time of a code, I'm sure you know this, Howard, that you're just pointing to people saying, I need this, I need this, I need this. And it has to be muscle memory during any situation when that patient decelerates. And so I felt like I had the muscle memory for any other type of event. Um, I just didn't know what was in that contrast reaction box. And for pediatrics, based upon their kilograms, you know, I have an EpiPen in my purse. I've had two reactions in my entire life and nobody can figure out what caused them. So with that being said, I have an inhaler and, you know, I have the epinephrine pen. I thought they were one size fits all and they are not for pediatrics at all. And so I, that's the first time I'd ever seen that. I was like, wow, see, now I know, and I'll be familiar with that. And, you know, in the unfortunate case that we actually have this happen. And so you actually have defined, you know, a pink area, you know, exactly what to do. And to me, that's muscle memory that needs to exist everywhere. And it took me, you know, over 12 years to actually see the difference in that. And I, I, It was a small group of us. I still don't think most of the technologists would even have a clue about that at our facility.
2: Right. And, you know, I think even before we get to the, you know, the really critical details of the epi uh, doses and so forth, I think a lot of people forget the basic ABCs. So one of the things we try to remind people in these training courses is, you know, when you hear that response called, you go in and as the physician Tell people to be calm and confident and in charge, and uh, s- start asking people to help you, just like a well-run true code. And the basics, okay? Can can someone put a cuff on? Pulse ox is showing what? Okay, is the IV all right? And you you at the same time you tell the patient, you know, I'm Dr. Rowley. I'm here to help you. I understand you had a you're having a little reaction. And uh, you should be confident. We're going to take care of you and and, uh, and get you through this okay. You know, so that, that calm, confident nature really helps. And, you know, if it's just something like hives, you know, you can either watch them or give them a little Benadryl. If they're short of breath, um, we've found a really good, you know, solution is to just cover them with a cloud of elupent or another inhaler just say you know they're going to be too nervous to, to actually inhale it correctly so you just give everybody in the room in the area a little, little bit of allupent crop dusting <laughs> exactly it's like the a magic cloud surrounds them and and you know seriously i think it does help and they they know that you're doing something you're recognizing it you're not blowing them off and you reassure them you put your hand on them and you know say we're going to take care of you here
0: you know what well, you know that's a that's a good that's a good point, um, and I, I really want to emphasize this to to the techs out there on the line. Is that, Howard, is that your that's your new dog? We, we'll keep it I, in. It's kind of. I don't know. I'm going to go if
2: you want. I can go check. Cause no, I've, no, 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 that's I,
0: fine. That's fine. Yeah. I I particularly like Howard was telling us he's got these two two new dogs, COVID dogs, right? Yeah. One of them I particularly like their names. One of them is a little hyper, and the other one's laid back. Um, Tell us about that, and then I'll get back to this thing yeah, here. Yeah, well,
2: well the, the hyper one is Stella. She's a, a Border Collie, and the the laid-back, really chill dog is named Stoner, and he's he's part <laughs> Bernese Mountain Dog and part Australian Shepherd.
1: Stella and Stoner. Stur- Stoner. Wow. They oh, just Sturner? turned five months. Stoner. St-
2: Stoner. Stoner, no. dude.
0: Stoner yeah, dude. I, I dude. Stoner, dude. I love
1: Stoner, dude. That's my type of, I got my dog. I got stoner bell right here below yeah. me. I mean, you can never, she's always with me. And uh, I mean, I can't imagine I'm going to have to have her stuffed and just, you know, take her around with me when she finally <laughs> does pass along, which I think the rest of the family would not be too upset, but let's don't talk about that. Okay. Um, no, let's now go let's, back. Let's go back let's go to go back
0: what you Yeah. Let's go back to calm. Uh, and I've seen this actually. Uh, I remember one time, you Folks, you've got to understand a, a patient who starts, you know, having some sort of adverse event. I I remember when I was in X-ray training back in nineteen yes, nineteen seventy three to seventy five. Okay, and and I remember I was
1: born in seventy
0: three. Yeah, I don't need to be reminded of that. Okay, so anyway, so when I was in in X-ray training back in seventy three to seventy five, I was taught how to inject iodine. Using a 50 cc syringe with an 18 gauge straight needle, okay, by Sue Buck. Sue Buck taught me how to, and that's how we injected IVPs. And I know there's many in the audience listening, probably right there with me. So, anyway, I take, you know, I, you inject this stuff, and then the person on the table starts going, oh, I'm feeling funny. And you say something like this. That's okay, honey. Take some slow, deep breaths in and out your open mouth. Breathe normally. This is normal. It will pass. You just say it really calm. And if you're in the South, that's why you call them honey, unless they're a guy. You know, it's like, you know, it's all right. Just take some slow, deep breaths in and out your mouth. That's normal. It'll pass. Uh, you've got to remain calm. I have seen it time and time again where somebody's injecting somebody and the patient says that they, you know, don't feel very well and they start screaming, Susie, get in here. I got, it! you know, and they start going nuts though. And, you know, the patient's got to be laying there thinking, Oh my Lord, I picked the wrong time and place to die. Um, you've got to maintain calm for the patient. Uh, if you're calm, they're going to be calm. If you're freaking the crap out, then they're going to freak out. And th- This is all part of, to Howard's point, which, again, I don't think we can stress enough to to people listening, you need to have a plan. It needs to be practiced. It needs to be reviewed because you cannot treat an adverse event in the scan room which means you've got to get the patient out. If the patient's having any kind of significant type other than nausea, I mean, again, physiologic, but if they start to maybe get a little hives or, you know, or when you're injecting them and they start going, you know, you, you kind of pause a minute and go, how you doing? You know, kind of a thing. Then you need to get them out. And this is where you need to look at your facility. You need to be able to emergently remove a patient from the scan room under all possible staffing scenarios. Uh, because if you can't get that patient out by yourself, if you're working by yourself and you can't get that patient out, you're going to have a major issue if you have to call a code and every, you know, and the cavalry comes running in there. Howard, you're again, your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's it's
2: really critical to have the training of of all the tech, tech, tech helpers and, and nurses who are usually around the magnet, and especially in the solo scenario you described, to bring them out of the magnet and close the door before uh, before the cavalry arrives, as you say, because uh, that's where people can really get hurt. Most reactions are very treatable and self-limited. But uh, you know if you get somebody running down, uh, well-intended, uh, who gets hurt because of a a moving piece of metal going into the bore past them or not quite past them, then you're in serious trouble. So that's a really important point.
1: You know, at the pediatric facility that I'm at, if it's a sedated patient, we have two deep sedation physicians. Um, There's a group of probably 10 of them that are back there, and we use propofol. And if a patient decelerates the nurse, and let's say I'm scanning, and me, and the... um, they're ER docs, but the deep sedation team, one of those, we own that room. We do. And the only thing me as the technologist has to do, I have two things. I point to someone else. We have three magnets in this one area. I point to someone and I say, block my door. And then only three people, unless we ask for assistance, go into that room to get that patient out of the room. And they are blocking the door because the ER is so close that and we have a a bad door delay and so people can slip through and we don't want anyone coming into zone four. So I think anyone, if you were to ask them at our facility, would know, they would say, yeah, if Kristen screams at me, you know, block my door or says block my door, I'm just going to go do that. Nobody's getting past me. So we do have that in place. And I think everybody would know immediately, no matter which role they're placed in. And then the same thing, even if we don't have, you know, we only have the radiologists, which are down the hall, you know, we have an emergency mechanism if we don't have the doctor immediately available with us at that time on you know we point we say you are in the room helping me move the patient you know everybody knows their role and so i I think that's very important to have that and to practice it i mean practice it
2: and one thing you mentioned there i I really picked up on that I think you said you had sedated physicians. I'd really like to be able to sedate some people so they don't bother me. So if you have a protocol, okay, so some of those colleagues. Physicians, you know what? Oh, sorry. I misunderstood. Okay. Oh. Yeah, doctor, Dr. Stoner. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Stoner. No, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, yeah, that reminds
2: no. me of Bill's favorite joke. That's my favorite joke. What's the difference between a radiologist and a a puppy? Come on, Bill. You get the punchline.
0: Eventually, the puppy will stop whining. Exactly. <laughs> and did you notice my puppy stopped whining in the background? Right? Oh, that's all right. That's okay. I got my my granddaughter's got her cat over here, so I've got the door shut so Muffin doesn't pay me a visit. Walk across my keyboard. Um, you know the the thing that Kristen said that that's extremely extremely important. So when you have any type of an emergency in an MRI environment, MRI personnel must maintain control of that environment at all times. And that's why it's important to practice uh, codes, emergency removal of a patient uh, from a scan room uh, at least once a year, if not more, because when outside personnel, when the cavalry comes in when they arrive they don't take control of that environment they may take control of that patient but they do not take control of that environment and uh, howard mentioned you know get them out lock the door you know shut and lock the scan room door and this is this is something to kristen's point about muscle memory that really has to uh you know take place and that's why uh, you need to practice this well again when i was in x-ray training in in the 70s and in the early 70s or late 70s you know early 80s before the days of non-ionic iodinated contrast you know we had adverse events you know some type literally every day and we didn't practice we didn't have an mri environment but we didn't practice because we knew where everything was and we knew how to do it because it happened it happened right well, to Howard's point, it doesn't happen that often. That's a great thing, but it does happen. And the problem is when it happens and if you're not prepared, then, uh, you know, then it's not good for, for anybody and including the patient, um, Kristen's got a, an example of something that, that was actually on uh, the paper. I'd like you to, to share that because it kind of is a good, I, I guess overview of what we've been talking about and howard i don't think you've you heard this uh report i hope it didn't involve me yeah no it didn't involve you so uh kristen go, you go through are it. lucky
1: no. this did not involve you
0: and yeah, this is this is very interesting
1: this was a, a small hospital there was one technologist that was working and that's why you know the acr and um, manual on MR safety that came out a year ago in April. They they look at staffing models and, and recommendations, strong recommendations of not having someone just be alone. It doesn't have to be another level two tech that's there. But you know, like, like you were talking about, like a tech aid, a patient care aid, someone there with him. So the patient gets contrast and um he immediately he goes into cardiac arrest And that's eventually going to to lead to severe neurological brain damage deficits. So the um, alarm was, so the patient is is going into cardiac arrest. The tech has to leave the patient to go into the control room where um, the actual, um, the MRI control room. And they um, activated an alarm that goes to the ER. Then the technologist, still leaving the patient alone, runs into the hallway and screams for help. The radiologist arrives at some point and then they go to the ER. They find a ER doc standing on a chair looking at the alarm on the ceiling, but they didn't know what it was for. So then the ER doc comes over to MRI and says, now we need to transport. Now think about the time that has elapsed here. The the patient has to be taken over to the ER to be treated of which happened. Well, during this time, again, cardiac arrest, you know, severe brain damage and it took the jury two points. Now this, this gentleman has to have 24 hour day, seven days a week care for the rest of his life because they didn't know how to, and they didn't treat this proper properly, all the different areas, not just radiology. They were not trained. It took the jury, um, approximately two and a half hours to come to a unanimous, um, verdict of $10.83 million. Um, 20, um, 25% 25 went on the radiologist and then, um, the remainder went on the hospital.
0: Uh, you know, they didn't have any kind of drug box in the ER. I mean, and I'm sorry, in the MRI room, the, the, if I'm not mistaken, the, MR room was only like 60 feet from the ER. And so their idea was, we'll just, you know, call the ER doc to come over. Unfortunately, nobody told the ER doc what that noise in the ceiling meant. And also the point I want to make here is like we were talking about earlier, they weren't prepared to remove that patient from the scan room. And so not only was it a poorly handled adverse event, it was a it was made worse because it's in an MRI uh, department that's you know, wasn't ready to handle this. Uh, Howard, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, this is, like I said, it's a sad, sad thing, but this is, you know, what can happen if you just, if everything works against you. Well, it's all part of this preparedness and a culture of safety
2: where, you know, like in a cockpit, anybody can call anybody on anything. You know, part of our yearly uh, staff-wide safety and infection control uh, modules it includes a MRI module, so that if you know somebody who normally works in infectious disease or whatever is is on to help uh, with codes that day, they, they know they're not supposed to come into zone four, and they know the risks. And so, in getting people educated, prepared, you know, and casting the net from a high level is important. And it's the same same thing for you know really. Anybody who goes in the magnet, radiology and the tech who sees them in through the door, the last final stop, radiology's in charge. And I don't care if the chair of orthopedics or whoever it is says put them in the magnet. We have it as a hospital policy that radiology is in charge and makes the final decisions. And we will defend our text to the death because we don't want deaths <laughs> in <Right>. our magnets.
0: <laughs> yeah, don't die an MRI, you know, it's, right. uh, it's not the time. It's One other thing I want to talk about here uh, has to do with two things. I want to talk about risk and then I want to talk about misconceptions on consent. Uh, because I think sometimes people, when we talk about contrast media, they talk about consent. Do you consent the patient, all that kind of stuff? But the first thing I want to address is risk. And I'm looking at a article uh, that is from Radiology in 2012. And uh, I'm not sure, but it's published in the Radiology Journal. Uh, this was in, I'm looking where the people this is from, uh, Seoul, Korea. Uh, and it was, the purpose was to determine incident and risk factors of immediate hypersensitivity reactions to gadolinium-based, you know, contrast agents. And the, according to their study, it was, uh, Again, it looked like I don't know if this was prospective or it was retrospective. I take that back. They looked between August 2004, July 2010. Looked at their medical records, and they found essentially that the immediate reactions uh, was a 0.079. So you know, point again, very low but what they said the recurrence rate and i've seen this in numerous publications the recurrence rate of reactions was 30 percent in patients with previous reactions and so if you look at the uh, acr contrast media manual basically they'll say essentially the same thing that if you've got somebody that had a previous adverse event that's probably the and howard if i'm interpreting this wrong tell me that's probably the number one risk factor is have you ever had you know any type of an adverse reaction following contrast administration
2: that's exactly right and you know there are some things that are you know related people who have a pr- tendency to have hypersensitivity reactions uh you know people with asthma and so forth uh, can have a higher uh, uh risk but uh, the number one risk is that you've had the agent before and um and now you're getting it again which you know comes to the discussion of who and when to pretreat and how to pretreat in in normal situations and in expedited
0: situations the number one thing on the pretreatment issue if you do choose to pretreat the patient you know that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not going to have an adverse event correct i mean and or in other words, the other thing you have to take into account is what type of an adverse event so this goes back to what the a c r was saying before if it was a physiologic reaction, you don't you don't pretreat somebody because they got nauseated, but you may tr- pretreat somebody if they had difficulty breathing or something like that correct howard
2: that that's exactly right, and you know it reminds me to just mention one thing one of the problems we all have is that I think as a as a world of radiologists and technologists, we're pretty bad about documenting in some cases what the agent was even. So you know that they got it five years ago and then you go back to try to find the details and you don't know exactly which gadolinium agent was used and exactly what happened and how they were treated. So good documentation after a reaction is really key uh, going forward. But you're right, you know, you may cut the risk of a reaction from thirty percent to ten or fifteen percent, but there are still breakthrough reactions, even
0: with appropriate pretreatment. And would you agree that hydration? Hydration comes up a lot, and people say, "Well, we just tell a patient to hydrate." But for gadolinium-based contrast agents, uh, hydration is really not that big of a deal is i mean that's more of an issue for iodinated contrast because it kind of stresses the kidney for gadolinium i mean at most you're giving somebody 20 mls so you
2: know right the hydration i don't think plays into it for gadolinium
0: you know that's that's always been more of a whether or not exists contrast induced nephropathy thing you know if kidneys clearing it uh but i've heard people say that well you know they got poor kidney function so we tell them to hydrate it's like, i don't know well, if that's actually doing anything
2: well, it can produce a larger volume of vomit
0: if, if they do have a <laughs> reaction, you know, if which, that's which what actually, your intention Which actually brings me to a, to a point I like to try to make. And, um, you know, Howard, I'd like your thoughts on this. Because so I don't have any science to back this up. Uh, but for me, if I had my druthers, and I, you know, at times in my life did work at places where I could have my druthers, uh, if somebody's going to come in and they're going to have contrast, we usually tell them to be uh, basically NPO for, you know, two to four hours before you come in. And uh, I have found that if somebody does not have a full stomach, if they get nauseated, they're, they're easier, it's easier to calm them down than if you get nauseated and you've just stopped in, just, just had a Big Mac, you know, before you got there. I mean, what do you think of that? I've never asked. I've never asked a doctor that, but that's always the way I've <laughs> tried to do it. I think the world is voted. It seems like a practical
2: thing, and that's exactly what we do: uh, two to four hours. Of oh, ITL, really? If possible, yep.
0: I didn't know that. Well, now I feel I feel vindicated. <laughs> the, the last thing I want to talk about before we get out of here, unless somebody else has got something out, has to do with consents because we get this question a lot from technologists. Uh, so let me just give a little background, and then then let's, let's get the opinions on this. There are really three types of consents. Uh, there's implied consent, expressed consent, and informed consent. Now, implied consent, the best way I can describe implied consent is somebody comes in, this is a Southern saying, somebody comes into the ER looking like death eating a cracker. And so they're just on the stretcher, they're totally unresponsive, and by virtue of the fact that they're, you know, cannot care for themselves, you know, whatever that implies consent. Uh, then there's express consent. Express mm-hmm. consent can be something as simple as hi, I'm bill. I'm doing your MRI. We're going to do this, this, and this, and then we're going to put you on the table and you know, tell telling about what we're going to do. Uh, do you have any questions? And they say, no. And we go, okay, let's get, it, let's get it going. That impl- that, that expresses consent. It's, uh, it's in, um, uh, it's in uh, just spoken form, but it can also be in writing where I give you a form and go here, read this over. I got some questions about your kidney functions, you know, ask me to see if you got any questions, sign and date it down at the bottom. Just because they sign something doesn't make it informed consent. And according to the AMA informed consent has to be done by the physician providing the service, not a delegated representative, according to the AMA. And so with probably a couple of exceptions that I can think of, gadolinium contrast administration really does not require consent, and express consent is is certainly enough for that. Howard, we'll start with you. Your thoughts on that? That, that I think, is the general practice, is
2: express consent. And, of course, the first time they get an agent, now they get the medication guide, yep. and we, we give a little overview sheet with that. Um, the only time we would veer off of that, I think, is if, If, for example, we're doing something really off-label, like, for example, using intrathecal gadolinium to look for a CSF leak or um, something of that nature, uh, then we would uh, typically get consent. And I know that, at least last time I checked, the Veterans Administration asked for uh, written informed consent, and they have a special form for it for folks with EGFRs less than 30 uh, if you're going to give them gadolinium. Uh, we don't do that, even in that situation. Uh, we use a group 2 agent, in our case, get a Bennett or multi and the risk of uh, NSF is so low, even at at-risk populations, uh, we don't get written consent, even in that situation.
1: The, we, we do the um, express consent, unless it's something to do with an IRB and research, and then it's informed consent. Uh, years ago we were doing something with diffusion weighting um, imaging on the spine and so we had definitely the informed consent as far as that goes there's been several other studies where we've had informed consent otherwise it's just the uh, the expressed
0: and, and again for for informed consent uh, it, it can say informed consent on the top of your form but if it doesn't Meet the test of informed consent, which actually, according to the AMA, has to contain a discussion of the patient's diagnosis, the purpose of the exam, risk benefits of having it, risk benefits of not having it. That has to come from the radiologist. It just can't come from the technologist.
1: Yeah, you know, we actually had to not do parts of those studies if, let's say, the radiologist, um, I know if they were unable to do. The informed consent. Then we did not do the diffusion of the spine. If we were, whatever study we were doing, if they were not available for it, to do that informed consent, then we were unable to do uh, those sequences on the patient. It was very strictly adhered to.
2: And that, of course, is true for any IRB-approved protocol. Would be a, a formal informed consent that's uh, it has a timestamp for when the protocol was reviewed by the IRB, and it's signed and it's witnessed and. They're given a copy of it, and it's put in a study binder. You know, I think for day-to-day administration of contrast, um, it would not be uh, at that level. And for most sites, uh, it's express consent rather than anything uh, that's signed.
1: Yeah, we have express consent. We have a video that they can watch. Um, You know, that's all that we do as far as giving, you know, the gadolinium-based contrast agents that we have. We have quite a few on our shelf but um, that's that's how we handle all of that. But as far as the informed, it's for a much more formal process. And you're exactly right. We have a binder that we keep everything in, a physical binder with the actual forms filled out inside of
0: there. You know, the other thing, I, the other reason I could think of to get informed consent, which would be in even rarer cases, with, if you were going to uh, inject gadolinium in a pregnant patient, would you agree, Howard? I think that would probably should be informed consent
2: yeah this came up just yesterday in our practice, and um, you know a pregnant patient with a spinal cord mass and the neurosurgeon really really wanted some additional imaging to see if there was a high blood volume or any particular malignant part i I've only given gadolinium to a pregnant patient once in the last thirty five years and that was a similar dire situation yesterday I decided to use feromoxetol and we I protocoled it, but I haven't seen the images yet, but that's that's an iron-based agent that's used in pregnancy for iron supplementation already and gives a terrific uh, T1 shortening uh, and T2 shortening that lasts for days. And so it was our 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 approach, same one that we use for pulmonary embolism studies in, in pregnant patients. Uh, we use uh, that ferraheme or ferramoxetol, and uh, it does have a black box warning and so forth uh, for fast injections at least. But it gives you another option in pregnant patients and I really try hard to avoid gadolinium uh, in pregnancy
0: for for those of you listening who did not catch our um, podcast with uh, Paul Finn, Dr. Paul Finn, uh, we discussed feramoxetal with that. I think we also just dis- discussed feromoxetal with the podcast we did with Dr. Jeff Mackey if I'm not mistaken. So if you've not caught those episodes, uh, you we would recommend that you check those out because I think you'll find the information extremely useful uh, regarding ferramoxetol as a contrast. Yeah, I'm
1: positive we did it um, for the fair hanging um, with Dr. Mackey, and um, I was not on the one with Dr. Fenn. I don't yeah. think so. Yeah, I don't so, think so.
0: Yeah. They're the so, iron men. The iron, <laughs> the iron guys. There's actually a paper paper um, that is freely downloadable. It was a multi-center safety and practice of off-label diagnostic use of ferrimoxetal. The conclusion was, and again, this multi-center study looking at truly at, at adverse events, it said that it was well-tolerated, associated with no serious adverse events and implicated in a few adverse reactions. Uh, but that this, you know, just kind of looking at the overall safety profile and Dr. Paul Finn happens to be one of the authors on that paper. Uh, so, if you all are interested, uh, you might might check that out. Uh, it's again, it was freely downloadable, it was in radiology. So any closing thoughts from from you guys? I think we're right at the end here. anything anything you want to add? No, just be away? prepared be just like a boy scout be prepared that's be prepared. the
2: thing.
1: <laughs> even if it r-
2: rarely um, happens be prepared be prepared
1: I, I just can't express enough here um that it really is and i always go back to football i know all of you know that i have big football players but it is muscle memory and if you do not practice it you are going to be literally a fish out of water, if you don't know what to do. And everyone, everyone has to know their role. It's just like with a fire drill. You have to know how each scenario will play out. And it just has to go into motion. It's just like being able to lift a car in that adrenaline rush that you get. You've got to know what to do. And back to Dr. Raleigh Howard's, you know, comment. You've also got to be calm about it as well, because... We can transfer those emotions over to the patient and just exasperate things. So just being prepared and knowing what to do. So when it does, if it's, if you're unfortunate enough, that it does happen on your watch, you know what to do.
0: And, you know, understand that it's going to happen. It's happened. It's well-documented with all agents. There is little to no statistical difference between the agents as it relates to adverse events, changing agents, is not going to reduce your risk of an adverse event. That's absolutely. Uh, I, I think people are kidding themselves. Uh, you doesn't. You can still have them. So you've got to be. Pre- you've got to be prepared, and you've got to be practiced at it. Uh, it's just going to happen. So again, I want to thank. I do Kristen. have to throw this yeah. in there. Yeah. yeah,
1: I'm sorry. My daughter okay. is sitting here. She loves to listen to me record. I have no idea why. And um she's slightly offended um, because <laughs> I did not we mention. Have be, we
0: have to be paid to listen to your record, actually.. Ha,
1: ha. Um, <laughs> so anyway, she does it for free, but she wants to make it clear that there's a lot of muscle memory when she's riding her horse as well, and she has to keep her horse calm.
0: That's true. Yeah, you don't want to. You do not want to hack a horse off. That's for that's for darn sure. That's,
2: and I was going to point out to Bill because he and I are the only ones old enough uh, listening that you don't want to mix up your 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 drills. Like this isn't the duck and cover situation that they taught us in yeah. the '60s for nuclear yeah. war stuff. Yeah. You know, this is actually get up and go there, but go. be calm.
0: Yeah, yeah, I remember those. Like, yeah, because we have a nuclear power plant around here, and it was kind of like, okay, if that goes off, you're going to get to your desk that's going to help. Um, so again, thank you all, both Kristen and Howard. I really appreciate it. It's been, a, been an excellent podcast, I think.
1: Um, you know what? Thank you, Bill. You are fantastic, and Howard, as always, you are
0: funny.
2: Funny, I'm funny. <laughs> All
0: right, right, thanks, everybody. Yeah, thanks. That brings us to the end of this MRI cast. Again, this episode was sponsored by an unrestricted educational grant from Brocco Diagnostics. Thank you again to them for their support. Again, it's great to have everybody here. Thanks for all the useful information. So that's it, folks. We're done. You're just going to have to get over it. See you next time. You've been listening to MRI cast produced by William Faulkner and Associates and Northwest Imaging Forums. (music) Thank <music> you.